My name is Alex Kashuta, and this is the Subversive Podcast. It's an excuse for me to talk to some of the most interesting people on the heterodox to heretic spectrum. Everyone from iconoclast philosophers to rogue scientists to real post-BuzzFeed journalists and our true intellectual elite, Twitter anonymous accounts. In short, they're quite subversive. Enjoy. Today, I'm joined by Jeffrey Miller. He is an evolutionary psychologist, and he is best known for his uh, long suite of books, The the Mating Mind, Mating Intelligence, Spent, and Mate, uh, and his current book, uh, Virtue Signaling. Uh, He has a BA in biology and psychology from Columbia and a PhD in cognitive psychology from Stanford, and is now working as a tenured associate professor at the University of New Mexico. Welcome, Jeffrey. Great to be here, Alex. Awesome to have you on because you're uh, one of the world's most uh, foremost experts in in the birds and the bees, which is a subject that comes up often in um, in discussions that I have either in my writing or with people or people just asking me for advice. And I, I try to make things a little bit, um, you know, inspired by evolutionary psychology or at least the fragments of it that that kind of filter through, through to me. Uh, but it's really good to have someone on who um, you know who's been dealing, you know, most of your career has been spent thinking about these subjects. So yeah, I'm, I'm really happy to, to be able to pick your brain on this one and obviously on, on other subjects as well. Yeah, I'm, I've spent, you know, 30 plus years studying sexual selection and the evolution of sexuality. And to me, it's, it's both personally fascinating, it's socially relevant, it's politically relevant. Um, But it's also got a lot of intellectual meat to it. Like, I think sexual selection is just one of the most scientifically fascinating processes that has ever happened in in our world. So um, I know a lot of people come to this sort of from the immediate situation of, I'm a guy, I'm a girl, how do I find a better mate? How do I have a better relationship? But there's so much depth and richness to the kind of evolutionary backstory that I also like to encourage people to sort of um, realize human sexuality is something you can have a real intellectual curiosity about and not just sort of think about it in terms of personal relevance. Yeah, so you, you don't have to look at it instrumentally. You can yeah also just be a, a, a neutral observer, if possible. I think that it's, it's a hard one to be a neutral observer with, uh, I have to admit. Um, yeah. there, there is one graph that I keep seeing. Uh, it's everywhere on Twitter. It's the, the Tinder male versus female graph. There's different variations of this, obviously, um, you know, where it's the graph makes clear that women will not like many men and that men kind of have this almost normal distribution of who they who they interact with on on Tinder, uh, and the conclusion typically is that you know, oh, you know, women. Am I right? Why, why are women so incredibly picky? They're they're out of their minds. Um, and to me, that that feels like a pretty narrow analysis. But what's what's going on there? I feel like you you kind of have a, a more a more wide ranging grip. Is, is, does it just mean that women are insanely picky? They're out of their minds. You know, <laughs> they're they're not thinking straight. Or is there something deeper to it? I think there's kind of three levels to what's what's going on. So if you look across all roughly 4,000 species of mammals, in most mammal species, the top 
few sort of most formidable, most dominant males account for the vast majority of the matings. And most females are picky and they want the kind of um, alpha male, you know, the healthiest, the best genes, the best phenotype, um, the biggest, strongest, the one who can fight off other males, the one who can secure a territory and secure the resources. And then you have this sort of polygynous mating system where one male, multiple females. And then most males are kind of excluded from mating and don't actually ever have sex or breed. That's the mammalian default. That's very typical. And then the second layer is you get this evolution of the pair bond in humans a few million years ago. Humans sort of opt out of that polygyny system to some degree, and they start forming these long-term kind of semi-monogamous pair bonds where the males actually you know, fall in love with a woman and kind of stick around and help her raise her kids. And I think that also runs deep, but it's kind of overlaid on this polygyny system. So we have this tension, this continual tension between a kind of pair bonded monogamy system that's only a few million years old and this mammalian polygyny system that's tens of millions of years old. And then the third layer is modern culture, like casual sex and Tinder dating and sort of um, you know, young people here in like Brooklyn or Manhattan where I'm, I'm currently living who are facing this really weird mating system where people are like neither doing standard mammalian polygyny that results in actually having offspring, nor are they forming long-term pair bonds, but they're doing some other third weird system that doesn't seem to have either any clear kind of evolutionary reproductive outcome or very much personal satisfaction. And that's kind of the, the, the place where we are. So a lot of the, the arguments about like, what's the real nature of human sexuality? There is no real nature. These, these three different levels kind of coexisting. I, ho I hope that makes sense. Yeah. No, no, it, it definitely makes sense. Um, it's it, to, to me, it is interesting that, you know, the, these apps were touted to be, okay, this is the, the ultimate matchmaker, you know, this, this will, um, this will, create, you know, assign weights to different things that you're interested in and will find you the perfect match. But it's essentially you apply a digital layer over a competitive game and then you have these winner take all dynamics that you see in almost every market at the moment. So it's, you know, it's in and in a way what these systems did, they made women aware of the availability, location, phone number of the most high status males. They just essentially just opened up access to to these guys who will date down for one night, <laughs> which is something that a lot of women haven't really kind of gotten their head around. Um, and, you know, I, I see it being in a way an inefficient market, I, even even for the for the top guys. I mean, I, I know some of these guys and you know, after after a few iterations of this, they, they get a bit jaded and they're they're they're, they're uh, they get a bit nihilistic about women and about life. So it's it's not an, an optimal system. I'm I'm curious what you think is there. What what should people I don't know do? Is there an, a way to to opt out of this? Because it has it has become a bit of a a bit of a normative way of finding someone. I think it's pretty hard to opt out of if you live in particular 
cities and geographical regions and you you live within a certain kind of um, political subculture. So clearly a lot of men and women in America and uh, Europe and Britain and, and other places are opting out by moving to places that have different values. For example, you know, they might go, ah, those Mormons seem to be doing something right. I'm going to move to Salt Lake City, start going to church, find a wife, find a husband, start having uh, four or five kids. And I think that's a totally legit response. Um, and for a lot of people, I think that actually yields much higher long-term life satisfaction than chasing um, educational credentials and careerism and kind of consumerism within the big uh, cities. So that's one option. I think another option is you try to carve out your own little um, kind of utopian zone of people with good sexual values and good pro-family values within a, a larger culture that's kind of hostile to those values. And that's possible, but I think it's very difficult. And, you know, the trouble is mainstream entertainment media like movies and TV series very rarely present a kind of viable mating system or system of forming relationships and families that actually works. And, and I think one, one problem is screenwriting. To be a successful screenwriter, you have to create drama and conflict to keep the viewer's interest. Mm-hmm. And so you, you literally can't show a high functioning, happy marriage with kids where everybody gets along and where the parents love each other and they love their kids and the kids love their parents because no drama, no conflict, nobody will, will watch it. So I think even the, the, yeah. the kind of demands of fiction itself and the kind of passive entertainment culture that we have makes it really, really hard to see any role models for how to do mating, reproduction, or family formation effectively. Yeah, yeah that makes sense. Do you think it ties into um, the cultural wave that, that the boomer generation represented? Uh, and in part also kind of this, the silent generation was working up to that, uh, but it's it's essentially this this backlash against sexual norms and you know the 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 60s revolution i feel like that's kind of encased in a lot of these narratives because you know who who writes for tv a lot of the the famous screenwriters were of that generation or at least very much inspired by it i mean even millennials are inspired by the the 1960s we're larping it every day uh so it's um i'm curious if there's there might be some generational rotation because it does feel to me like there's there's a bit of a backlash boiling boiling up at the moment against, you know, super liberal sexual morality, you know, no holds barred, free love type of things. Uh, and, and obviously the dysfunctions that follow from that. Yeah, I think basically we're, we're still, you know, what is it now, almost 60 years after the, after the invention of the contraceptive pill, we're still trying to come to grips with the full implications of contraception for society, um, by which I mean cheap, easy, reliable contraception. So the 60s sexual revolution was sort of the first wave of young people realizing, oh my God, like we can, we can have sex without necessarily that having reproductive implications immediately. Mm-hmm. And then the 60s and 70s were kind of an attempt to, to work through 
okay, what does that mean in terms of sexual morality? And I think a lot of women in the kind of late 70s, early 80s started to realize if you have a kind of casual sex system, you immediately revert to kind of standard mammal hypergamy and winner-take-all dynamics and polygyny. And you saw this in the kind of post-hippie cult um, behavior that developed. You saw it in uh, sort of fangirl and rock star dynamics. You saw it in the disco era kind of promiscuity that left a lot of people very kind of broken and sad and kind of timed out of the reproductive mm -hmm. market. Um, and people also realized, oh my God, there's a small minority of males who are hardcore psychopaths and sexually exploitative who do stalking and harassment and sexual coercion. And if you're not uh, careful of that, if you don't have kind of guardrails to defend against that, then all kinds of chaos can happen. And then you have these swings back and forth with kind of 80s conservatism and, you know, 90s, uh, and, and so it goes. So we're, we're still trying to figure out, you know, how do you have a viable, like, pro-marriage, pro-family society that, that has contraception? Yeah, there, there's an, an interesting essay by, by Heather McDonald that I keep referencing. Uh, it's um, the, the, the sexual default essay, where essentially after the introduction of contraception, the sexual default went from, you know, a, a standard no sex before marriage to a standard yes sex before marriage. But then that opened up a lot of waters to be negotiated, which, you know, we're, we're, we're now kind of funneling under the idea of consent, but consent seems like a, a very flimsy fig leaf to, for all the complexity that lies underneath the, the, the norm of consent. So um, I, I'm curious what you think about that. You think that that was, uh, that uh, to me, it feels like Me Too is, is a, completely downstream from that. You know, the, the confusion that people have towards, you know, negotiating these areas, a lot of gray areas, you know, what is abuse, what isn't abuse, what's consent, what isn't, uh, seems to be, yeah, growing out of that particular moment. Yeah, the consent culture is funny because there's such a double standard about consenting to sex versus consenting to reproduction. So at the moment, the standard kind of sex positive emphasis on affirmative consent basically says um, both sexes in principle should equally consent to sex. However, women should have a complete monopoly on deciding whether it results in a baby. So if a woman, you know, says, okay, let's have casual sex. And she says, I'm on contraception. And if we have sex and if I get pregnant, I'll definitely have an abortion. The guy might consent to that with the expectation that, okay, I won't have to pay paternity and child support. Right. But actually it's entirely mm -hmm. in the woman's control. Um, conversely, if, you know, the woman gets pregnant, then the man is expected to have absolutely no say whatsoever in whether a baby comes to term or not. So we have this kind of blind spot about consent where, you know, both sexes are supposed to do affirmative consent about sex, but only the woman gets to have any say whatsoever about the reproductive implications. Except, of course, the man might be on the hook financially for hundreds of thousands of dollars for decades in the future if the woman has a baby and he didn't consent to it. Yeah. 
So that's a real problem. And I think it leaves young men in a situation where with the rise of red pill subculture and the manosphere and all of that, young men are increasingly aware that they're extremely vulnerable to um, the paternity support issue. And they're extremely vulnerable to charges of uh, sexual harassment or coercion that might ruin their lives, even if they follow affirmative consent protocols very, very carefully, they're still extremely vulnerable. And I think that means they're deterred from dating or from having sex. They're, they're terrified. And mm -hmm. I see this in my college students that um, a large proportion of them are still virgins and are still not, you know, they want sex, they want girlfriends, but they're absolutely terrified of the vulnerability that they face in the modern culture. And do you think this is kind of the, the major factor in, in people being deterred from sex or are there other factors? Because I, I, you keep seeing the statistic that, okay, people are having less sex and it's mostly young men who are having significantly less sex than they used to. So what, what, what is, is this the, the major thing or is, are there other things that flow into it? I think it is, it's partly this fear factor I mentioned. It's partly with Tinder and dating apps, you, you can get so easily into this kind of runaway winner take all hypergamy where um, if you're a super attractive guy on Tinder, you will, you know, get like 10x more dates than you might have gotten 20 years ago. If you don't make the cut, if you're not a very attractive guy, you know, with money, with sexual experience, you will get zero interest. Um, and I think that's partly because I think there's some sort of delusional training that happens with young women that says, if you're good enough to get a guy to have sex with you, but he doesn't commit to you, that's his problem, right? That's his inadequacy. That's his commitment phobia. Whereas, of course, what's actually happening is the guys who can have short-term mating with unlimited numbers of women are going to be choosy about who they commit to. So it's much easier for any given woman to seduce a movie star, a rock star, a famous YouTuber, whoever, than it is to get him to become their, their boyfriend. And that's how sexual competition works. Um, but instead of Kind of accepting that reality that you're going to have to settle you're going to have to settle for a worse boyfriend than the ideal one night stand that you got you know a year or two ago uh then you i think you get women being in a cycle of kind of chasing these super high status guys and having sex with them and then wondering why aren't they settling down with me and this is the entire plot of the tv series sex in the city this is the whole thing that happens with those four women in New York. That is their life, their lives yeah. throughout their thirties. 
Exactly. And it's it's interesting because that that's that was such a normative series, uh, even for, you know, girlfriends of mine here in, in Romania, you know, whoever spoke English was watching Sex in the City. And they were like, yeah, this is a very aspirational lifestyle. And uh, but the thing is, in Sex in the City, they all settle down, you know, they're they're all, I don't know, 38 or something, they get married, everything's, you know, white wedding type situation, which doesn't always happen. And, you know, with, with girls who who, you know, go through the, the, the Tinder uh, character. Cell. And it doesn't it doesn't always end up with the white wedding with the you know high status millionaire who finally decides he really does love you, not the 23 year old model who's been dating in the last six months, which you know is 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 a bit of a betrayal because that's not really how reality pans out typically. Um, and it's such a common scenario. Like I, I see this and the problem is, you know, you, you go through this a few times, but, you know, you get rejected at that level as a, as a woman, you know, you didn't, you didn't used to get rejected when you were young and, you know, it, it, and then something happened and then everyone started rejecting you and it does really leave its mark. Like there's the, the, the number of people I know that, you know, are, are on psychiatric medication, not just directly from this, obviously anxiety disorders are on the rise for other reasons as well, but, oh, it's definitely not helping, not helping, you know, just being stuck in this cycle where, you know, you're not good enough. You're just not going to, you're not going to get the long-term relationship. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, it's, it's a tragedy. Um, at the individual level, but I think people have to recognize that it's a tragedy that's imposed by a particular kind of mating culture. It's not just an individual failure. It, I mean, it's kind of an individual failure to buy into that that media narrative that says you can kind of do casual short-term mating, you know, in a sort of unlimited, irresponsible way right up until you're just about to lose your fertility and then you can finally snag Mr. Big and then have your ideal number of kids. Mm -hmm. There's a certain level of, you know, self-deception gullibility that it takes to buy into that. But on the other hand, all the mainstream media is kind of reinforcing that, that narrative and saying, um, you know, you don't need to think about finding a good husband in your your mid twenties, you can wait another 10 years. And I think for a lot of women, um, that can be a very bad idea. And also for a lot of guys, the, the whole winner take all system is also kind of toxic because, you know, most guys will lose in that competition, but even the guys who kind of win the casual sex competition aren't building the kind of long-term relationship skills that will serve them well if they ever do settle down and have kids. It's really, really hard to pivot yeah, if you're they... like a success, sexually successful guy in your mid, mm -hmm. mid thirties to pivot towards like having a, a home and a family and kids. And, and that's a massive shift in how you spend your, your time and energy. Yeah, and what I what I've been hearing from you know uh, the the people that I know that are in this in this dreadful situation of having too much choice and too much uh, you know having the smorgasbord of women, is that um, you you're kind of looking for the whole package, but the whole package expands with every iteration, with every date. You know, the, every woman has you know some some sparkle in her eye or some some witty you know repartee or whatever whatever is interesting uh, that adds to the list of things that you would like in your ideal mate. And then when you kind of think, oh, okay, this one's kind of got what what it takes you're always disappointed because people are imperfect 
and um, you know you're you're probably not going to like her, you know, when she's disheveled and makeupless or whatever. Um, and it's you know it's it's a bit of a it's a bit of a prison, a self a self imposed you know prison of, of choice. Yeah, and it's a denial of trade offs. And and the weird thing is, you know, in every do other domain of life, we acknowledge trade offs. Like when you're you're in your professional career and you're trying to choose jobs. Everybody knows you can't have a job that where it's like you only have to work a few hours a week. There's no risk. You get paid millions of dollars and everybody loves you and you get to work for a company that's 100 percent ethical. Like we all know that's that's delusional and no such job exists. We know when we're choosing a city where to live, you know, there's a trade off between like how much culture there is and how many interesting people there are versus how high the rents are. But when it comes to, to mating, there's almost a taboo about talking about these trade-offs that like there's no complete package that you as a, as a flawed human being will actually be able to, to get to be interested in you because they're all looking for the same, yeah. you know, ideal combination. Yeah, and it's it's a competitive thing, you know. We we kind of have this idea of the one, and uh, you know, there's gonna someone will show up that will have the the necessary qualities, and then we will be complete, and the problems in our lives will be sorted out by this relationship. Um, and it does feel to me like there's uh, there's something to be said about the fact that other types of relationships have, have kind of collapsed, like you know, extended family relationships, um, you know, community things like that. There there's not really you know people have fewer and fewer friends. They don't go. They don't go bowling, or if they do, they go bowling alone, as we know. Um, it's um, you know how how much pressure are we putting on these relationships? Is is that a factor? Yeah, absolutely. Um, it it's very striking to me that, um, for example, when I was writing the Mate book with Tucker Max, we did uh, a podcast called Mating Grounds, where hundreds of young men called in with their problems and their issues, and. We ended up talking a fair amount about male-male friendships and pointing out to these guys, like if you can't even cultivate a viable friendship with another guy, where like for a guy to make friends with another man takes about like a tenth as much effort as as you know forming a sexual relationship with a woman. And a lot of these young men didn't even have any male friends. Like they maybe had online buddies they played video games with who they'd never met, but they didn't actually have real life male friends. And we, we pointed out, you know, there's transferable skills. If you can form a long-term male friendship that's viable and you negotiate your, your little conflicts and dramas as they arise and, and you realize your friend's not perfect, you are not perfect, that's really good practice for a sexual relationship. Likewise, dealing with your your um, extended family, like how many of these guys even go to family reunions and have anything to do with their nieces and nephews and are in contact with their cousins and and use their aunts and uncles as as mentors. They're cut off often from all of that. So they end up wanting their their one key sexual partner to fulfill all these roles roles that they haven't even practiced, you know, developing the skills to fill themselves. Yeah, it does. It does feel like that's that's a, a very big factor. 
And um, especially with, for some reason, for, for males, it's, it seems like a little bit harder to, to create these relationships if they, they are not somehow embedded in them. Because uh, I don't know, it, it might be the, the, the push to urbanize, might also be this kind of one, one-way culture that we have. Um, but, you know, without the, the, the basic substructure, I see a lot of, a lot of my male friends, they, they kind of, are kind of floating free. Women, maybe they have the drive to be a bit more social just by, I don't know, by nature, but typically, you know, normal, normal distributions shift that way. Um, but it, it does seem to be extra hard for men to do that. Yeah, I think it is, it is hard because, um, you know, a lot of young men are, are kind of moving away from, uh, towns they were raised in, they're, they're pursuing their credentials and their careers often in a more kind of risk-seeking way than women are. So we know young men are just moving farther away from home than women tend to move. Um, and they're losing a lot of their, their um, high school buddies and they're not staying in touch with old male friends or relatives. So they're kind of atomized and they're kind of at a distance from everybody around them. And nowadays with I think the kinds of work that they're doing, they don't often have the same kind of male camaraderie within the factory or the office that maybe their dads or granddads had. Um, and I think that's partly a function of increased uh, work mobility and the frequency of switching jobs that you're not building up these long-term uh, work relationships. How, how much of a function to get to get spicy about this is the increasing like feminization of workspaces and that you know like you, you can have a certain type of camaraderie with with female colleagues but you it's a very different thing in the in the, on the construction site or in in the you know in the army barracks you know maybe maybe not lately but it used to be i think it's a big factor because you know, I'm I'm all for sexual equality and women having meaningful work and careers, and that's that's all good. But there are there are some hidden costs to that. For example, um, I've worked in universities where there used to be back in the '60s or '70s quite a strong, very um, macho kind of like let's to get let's get together and like drink and debate ideas and be absolutely uninhibited about like slamming on each other's stupid ideas and criticizing each other's science. And you kind of are really pretty mean to each other, but it's like male bonding through intellectual competition. If you tried that shit in, in a modern faculty party, you would very quickly be ostracized. You would not get tenure. Um, there's really no space for that kind of intense male-male competition in the service of male bonding that there used to be. So I'm not saying that every workplace has to do that or that, you know, that's um, better in every way than the modern system, but it did have some hidden benefits for the guys who were involved in that. And so if you get a kind of feminized workspace that says like, Male buddies at work are never allowed to go out in all male groups and do that kind of male bonding. You're basically hamstringing, you're, you're gutting their capacity to form male friendships with work colleagues. Yeah. And you also add the, 
Yeah, you also add the layer of of kind of these these very sterilized workplaces nowadays because you you kind of have the the, the looming threat of of, uh, of litigation of sexual harassment. You know, it becomes much more stressful, and I feel like it's it's a very heavy thing to be working in a modern corporation. The the level of of um, you know, overt or covert norms that one must abide by, especially if you're a guy, is is quite quite in, insane. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know how I'd, how I'd navigate it. I'd probably try to try to find work from home somehow, because <laughs> this is yeah, this is a this is a definitely tough one. Yeah, and we've we've known this ever since, like ever since at least the '90s. I mean, Fight Club was such a watershed movie for a lot of men in my generation in terms of portraying like there's this absolute schism between kind of feminized corporate workplace culture and what it demands of men versus the kind of like tribal male male bonding that guys have a real thirst for and of course fight club didn't really offer like a viable middle way between those two things but it it did identify an absolutely key problem in modern society. And some men get it. Some men have seen that movie. Some men read the red pill stuff. They, they get into the manosphere. They understand the problems. But most guys don't. And they sort of wonder, like, why? Okay, I know I'm anxious and terrified at work. I'm always afraid of being fired or called out or having some false allegation against me. But uh, I guess that's just... That's how life is now. Just have to adapt to it. Yeah. And then so they you, get if into you look the... at mainstream sources. It's yeah, it's it's almost it's it's so bad that it's almost gaslighting. Like for men, especially like the the types of uh, advice that you get from I don't know GQ or wherever men get their men's health are essentially written by you know female hr workers like that's literally maybe do the opposite and maybe that would work it's uh i don't know it's quite terrifying exactly yeah and um you you kind of have to follow the money with all this stuff men have to ask themselves what are the economic incentives behind the media that you're consuming uh gq bless its heart, is about selling men uh, expensive clothing that is guaranteed to go out of, out of fashion within a couple of years. So you keep, you stay on the fashion treadmill and you buy the next year's clothing. It's not promoting classical male style of the sort that women for generations have tended to like. Um, or if you ask yourself, what are the financial incentives for, let's say universities, in terms of recruiting and keeping male students, um, the kind of runaway credentialism that, that American universities promote is often not in the interests of most young men. Young men are going to universities and they're dropping out at enormous rates. They're not finishing. A lot of state universities, you know, the six-year graduation rate for men is under 50%, meaning fewer than 50% of the guys going Will ever get a bachelor's degree. Instead, they rack up tens of thousands of dollars of student loan debt, and they don't even get a degree because they can't actually compete with female students in a kind of feminized university culture. 
So I think young men need to be yeah. really, and really skeptical about a lot of these institutions. Yeah, and, and the the fact that women are <clears throat> moving into universities, I mean, it's probably, they're not really moving now, but they've, they've moved into universities in the last, you know, almost 50 years now. Um, <clears throat> does really put put another layer of pressure on the on the mating market because men just literally are not good enough anymore most men are just not interesting educated you know uh liquid enough to to, to satisfy especially the, the higher status and more educated women um do you think that's a that's a big factor or is that just a yeah, as long as you have a situation where I think currently in the U.S. at least, you know, about 60% of uh, college undergraduates are women in a lot of fields like my field, psychology, um, over 60% of people getting PhDs are women. So it's a very um, kind of female dominated, feminized culture. And that has all kinds of implications. For example, um, Imagine a young man who goes to university and he he wants to go into the military, like he joins ROTC or one of those pre-military student groups. And maybe he's interested in history. He wants to learn about military history. So he goes and takes some military history classes. But they're taught maybe by a female professor who studies, you know, the bad effects of colonialism and who thinks warfare is always bad, the military is intrinsically evil, blah, blah, blah. And he can't even learn about the stuff he's interested in because nobody is even willing to teach it. Or he takes psychology courses that basically demonize all masculinity as toxic masculinity and that celebrates all femininity as good. Yeah. So he's going to end up completely alienated. And I know so many young men in universities who feel like I can't even speak up in classes. I'm outnumbered, I'm outgunned, the faculty won't support me. If I bring a distinctively masculine point of view into a discussion of history or psychology, I will get shut down, embarrassed, ostracized. None of the women in my class will want to date me. And God forbid, you know, I mentioned that I support conservative politicians or something like that. So it's a very hostile educational yeah. environment for young it's men. Yeah, exactly, and it's um, it's it's interesting because the the a, a you know a, a modern you know gender feminist would probably say, okay, this is this is uh, deserved deserved backlash. You know, this is essentially this the situation that a woman was in maybe like in the nineteen fifties in the university, and it's it's well deserved. And this is the this is the the way we're gonna equilibrate the the forces in the universe. And um, do you think there is an end to that, or is is the is the the well deservedness of this situation gonna continue? Continue to inspire feminists. Generally, thinking, I, I, I think it's deeply unethical to punish one generation for a previous generation's sins. Um, I think that but makes it is trendy. No, it is trending, but I think with regard to racial politics and sexual politics, it makes no sense. Um, if you want to punish twenty-year-old guys for somehow being associated just by virtue of having a Y chromosome with a history of patriarchy, fine, you can, you can do that, but then don't complain that you can't find a boyfriend or a husband five or 10 years later who 
shows any degree of sexual self-confidence or, you know, uh, dominance or uh, success in life. Because if you, if you create a situation where none of those masculine virtues can shine in your educational system, they're not going to shine in the mating market. Young men won't magically develop those at age 23 after they graduate. You have to nurture them all the way from puberty onwards. Yeah, yeah. This this antagonistic system is is a is a is a death spiral. That's that's what I see. You know, because it, like you said, it's the same women that complain about you know men men being not good enough, but then they also pile on to the eternal yeah the, the eternal fight with the with the other the other gender. Um, another thing I want to ask you about, because you're a, you're a kind of a more high profile person in, in this community, is polyamory. It's been very much discussed in, in many circles, and there's all sorts of angles on 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 this um, you know on this issue on this lifestyle. Um, I mean, I'm I'm personally not necessarily skeptical. I do think polyamory works for specific people that have a very you know specific. Uh, characteristics, either, you know, psycho, psycho, psychological characteristics or, you know, high uncoupling, very rationalist type people. I've seen it work. I've also seen it go <laughs> dramatically sideways for some people. Uh, but uh, to me, I think my my pushback against it is that to me, it feels like one of the, the, the primary exponents of, of luxury beliefs, you know, where for some people that are that are, you know, that are very specifically cut out to, to live a certain lifestyle, uh, it works, but then because those people are high status, you know that that becomes something that people lower down the rung, or people that are not cut out to do that type of lifestyle reflect, and that might have you know large scale consequences, you know, a few dominoes down the down the line. So I don't know what's what's your stance on this. My stance is basically one that very very few people share, and I get a lot of blowback both from the kind of mainstream woke polyamory community and from more kind of conservative traditionalist family values people. Um, I wrote a piece for Colette a couple of years ago that tried really hard to try to reconcile uh, polyamory mating ethics with the requirements that like whatever sexual mating system you have for it to be sustainable long term across generations, it has to be consistent with people forming long-term pair bonds or little groups and raising children and, and having an economically viable family system. Any sexual system that isn't consistent with raising kids is not viable long-term, period. So in a way, the burden of proof mm -hmm. is against polyamory. Like unless polyamorous can demonstrate that there are ways that their mating ethics, you know, can contribute to um, sustainable relationships and and child rearing. Nobody's going to buy into it. No one, no one's going to support it. But the weird thing is, there's a bit of a double standard. So to me, most people involved in the kind of single casual dating scene don't really view that as an ethos. So they don't hold it up to any moral standard whatsoever, right? They think I'm just going to do the casual dating scene and then maybe eventually I'll do monogamous marriage and suddenly shift my entire ethical perspective on 
relations between the sexes. And meanwhile, I'm going to diss on polyamorists who form actual loving, ethical, consensual, like medium and long-term relationships because they think, oh, somehow polyamory is more distant from monogamy than casual sex is from monogamy. Mm -hmm. But to me, unethical, sociopathic, winner-take-all casual dating is the joint enemy of both monogamy and ethical polyamory, right? So I think um, from the viewpoint of like a trad life married monogamist, from that viewpoint, it looks like there's there's not any daylight between like casual sex dating culture, Tinder culture, and polyamory. But actually to thoughtful polyamorists, we realize, oh, actually, we're closer to the, the pair bonding monogamists than we are to casual dating culture that treats everybody as disposable. Yeah, and, and, and I, I think, think it's I just think yeah, from, from the perspective of the. Yeah, sorry, um, from from the perspective of the of the, you know, trad married person <laughs> recently. Anyway, I can't I can't say I've got a, a long track record, but um, maybe the um, the, the lack of pushback against, you know, uh, against hookup culture is that, you know, it's, it's not it's not the equilibrium. You know, people are that's kind of like a transitory state and people don't say, OK, this is a lifestyle. You know, we're going to die together or, you know, we're, this is this is an equilibrium we're working towards. Um, and the idea is that, you know, if people will, will have children, they probably either will, you know, have them in, in some form of monogamish situation. Uh, but yeah, I, I think, you know, you're highlighting a, a serious issue there because, you know, there's not really that many constraints put put on people, especially with single motherhood as well. It's got, it's got quite a, a lot of a lot of issues connected to it. But, you know, um, it, it might also be that, you know, polyamory is just exotic enough to attract uh, attention, though I don't, I don't think it's that common, is it? You know, I think it's mostly discussed in in internet circles to be honest yeah it's it's really not that common um i think i've read all the empirical studies on polyamory that are out so far and there's only honestly about 200 scientific papers on polyamory versus like 40,000 papers on gay and lesbian sexuality so it's not very well studied it's a relatively new movement and it's probably a few percent of gen x and millennials who are kind of actively polyamorous versus probably over, you know, 50% uh, think they're in the casual dating culture or would, would like to be. So it's still a, a kind of small minority. And the popular media depictions of polyamorous people are not actually the high status people who kind of practice it on the down low. Like, of course, most Hollywood movie stars are de facto polyamorous. And they have some kind of arrangement with their spouses about like, if we have a medium term relationship with somebody else on set, on location, it doesn't count. It's not a threat to our pair bond, but they never talk about it publicly. The people willing to go on reality TV as openly polyamorous are typically kind of losers, right? And they're, they're often social justice activists who see polyamory as a, as a form of political activism like we're going to overthrow the patriarchy and this is how I express my feminism and blah, blah, blah. So I really don't think there's that much of a danger of like 
a bunch of high status people suddenly coming out as as openly polyamorous and like bringing a whole flock of of followers with them um it would be kind of interesting if that did happen but honestly the anti-polyamory stigma is so strong and it's so much harsher than the um stigma against casual sex that like i i honestly don't think this is the enemy that the kind of trad life conservative monogamous need to be fighting i think casual sex culture is the enemy yeah yeah i agree with that um just in in terms of um i think the the, the one thing that people react to because i'm just kind of like trailing through my, my visceral reactions to it. And I'm just trying to an- analyze why, you know, why, why I have a resistance to it. And actually I've, I've, I had an open relationship in, in my youth and that probably went completely up in flames. And there's probably a data point that I'm relying on. Uh, but um, it's, um, I think it's the idea of, you know, knowing people that are, have a, a rationalist bent, a lot of hubris about their, their um, relationships and you know, knowing also the, the 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 science behind you know growing up in non kin related you know environments with a lot of people that change a lot, and and also the idea of you know prior, prioritizing something, you know, to to me it feels like a very expedient as you know sexual satisfaction. It's obviously a very important dimension. It's you know important to everyone, but it feels like okay, I'm going to organize my life around this you know core value and then structure everything else around it, which everything else will include my children as well. So to me that that's kind of why I feel this this pushback a little bit. Yeah, I this is I think where being an evolutionary psychologist is a huge help, and I, I've talked about this probably thousands of hours with my wife, Diana. Um, When you really understand evolutionary psychology, you develop this trust in your instincts and you develop a faith that when you deal with certain kinds of life transitions, like having a baby and becoming a parent, there's a whole set of instincts and priorities and preferences that will come online automatically, that will recalibrate your priorities and recalibrate how you spend your time and energy and what you pay attention to. And so you can have the faith that like, you can take the most feminist, social justice polyamorous woman. And if she has a baby, there will be a shift in her priorities. And she might fight it, she might embrace it. But you know, and likewise, even the men doing casual sex or polyamory, if they're in a pair bond, if they have a baby, if they're living with a woman, if they're living with a baby, they will shift their priorities to become better dads. And that means less mating effort, more parenting effort. So once you have the faith that human nature is wired to do this successfully, you don't have to worry that like, oh, the polyamory ideology itself is going to kind of fuck people up as parents. Uh, yeah. it, it might sometimes, yeah. but I, I honestly think parental love is such a profound, strong emotion that it, it kind of sorts out a lot of these problems on its own, honestly. 
Yeah, I, I think I think that's true. Um, I, I also believe that we, we've kind of gotten to a point where we've uncoupled a lot of stimulus response loops that we've had kind of evolutionary baked in because we're not really optimized to have children We're optimized to get aroused when we see something sexy and then try to copulate with it. And then, you know, a few dominoes down the line, we have children and we've really managed to uncouple all of these knots, you know, from arousal to procreation to, to all of this stuff. And a lot of people are not really having children, or at least, you know, the, the, the very uncoupled <laughs> set in the West. And, and I'm curious that if people don't really get to the point where they have these, where they have children, where these instincts can get to kick in once again, because a child is has an, an undeniable evolutionary event. It's not like something you can negotiate, like, I don't know, porn or birth control or things like that. It's, it happens and you deal with it. But um, I don't know what what's your take on the fertility crisis. Is this uh, are we are we going like lemmings off the <laughs> off the edge of the cliff? Yeah, absolutely. Demographically, we are. Demographically, most countries in the world are. And earlier, I mentioned contraception as this thing that we've been struggling with for decades, and we really don't know how to integrate it into our lives in a way that that leads to multi generational success. And you're, you're right, like the instincts we have to procreate do not take the form usually of a conscious desire to have babies. Sometimes it does, but the, the way nature gets us to have babies is it gives us a, str a strong sex drive and a strong drive for sexual validation and romantic love and desiring a partner. That's how it motivated sexual behavior that then led to reproduction and contraception cuts the Gordian knot. It, it means you can have all that stuff that your instincts desire without it necessarily leading to babies. Now, of course, in the ultra long term, evolution will sort that out in the sense that either humanity goes extinct or in another hundred generations, the people who are still left standing, have evolved a very strong, much more conscious desire to have babies, not just to have sex. Um, and I actually wrote a thing about this um, in relation to the Fermi paradox um, a few years ago, saying like the evolutionary trajectory we're on is towards uh, pronatalist, pro-family, often uh, you know, religious views of, of procreation. And that is the way that this contraceptive dilemma seems to be getting solved in some subcultures. So, you know, the question is like, could basically, could you develop like a, a smart secular version of that pronatalist pro baby pro family culture that doesn't rely on kind of reactionary, super orthodox religious traditions. And I hope so. I hope I, I really hope so. But it, it's it's an open question. Yeah, I think that's that's probably one of the, the bigger conversations now um, within kind of this this spinoff of rationalism that I'm probably in as well, you know, this kind of people trying to 
do more em embodied things, you know, kind of go going back to tradition almost blindly to say, okay, you know, we're just going to go through these rituals and see what happens. Uh, it's, it's, it's a LARP. I, I agree. It's, it's all kind of, you know, <laughs> it's, it's invented. Um, but it does, it does kind of work. It's got a very soothing effect. It's like manual labor for someone who's just like, you know, watching screens all day. There's just something happening that, that is really, it's, it, it's, it's good and it has to be this way. Um, so it's, uh, it's, it's an interesting experiment. But yeah, I agree. I'm, I'm really curious what forms this is going to take. And I think one of the big forms is going to be a big, a big backlash uh, against whatever it is that's going on right now. And I feel like, uh, you know, Generation Z is going to be in the, in the avant-garde with this one. Um, because, yeah, they, they, they're seeing everything unfold now. They're seeing the, you know, the millennial why-nots and they're seeing incel culture. They're seeing whatever is going on in, in these, you know, dark forums. And, uh, you know, I'm, I'm all for the dark forums. I spent some time in there. There's, they're great, you know, 90% of the time, but there's some, some stuff in there, whoa, that <laughs> if, if, if I was in that subculture, I'd, I wouldn't really do well. And there's also been this case, I, I don't know exactly how related this is, but, you know, the... Um, the uh, sex worker shootings in, um, was it, yeah, in, in the U.S. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm curious what, what your stance is on, on, you know, incel culture as well, because it seems to be an identity. It's kind of growing as, okay, I am an incel, I identify as an incel. What's, what's the effect of, you know, identifying yourself with you, the impossibility of mating? Yeah, Let, I just want for a minute to go back to this the, the LARPing issue because I think it's really important to to remember historically every revival of tradition starts out as kind of a weird LARPing subculture, right? So the Renaissance itself in Europe was sort of Greco-Roman LARPing. It's like, let's revive all this shit from 1500 years ago and see if it's still relevant. Um, Neoclassicism in architecture is... LARPing classical architecture, right? It's trying to revive it. Um, mid 20th century folk music was LARPing and trying to revive like eight, late 1800s folk music. So every revival of any worthwhile tradition always starts out as kind of a bizarre LARPy subculture until it takes over, until it goes mainstream. And then, and then people look back on it and they go, Oh yeah, well they were they were just um, doing like a historical correction and getting back in touch with something that was really valuable that we'd forgotten. So I have like I've gotten really into like Nordic folk metal the last couple of months and um, bands like uh, Wardruna and Heilung and so forth, and I think they're doing something really interesting, which is kind of getting back to a much more primal tribal um like trans-oriented revival of um not paganism as a religion but paganism as a kind of um emotional mindset and i think there's a lot of value in that and you know you can make fun of like all the the viking accoutrements and whatnot but i think if you look past that you can see there's a genuine thirst for kind of stripping away all of the kind of bullshit of modernity and recognizing some kind of primal human motivations and values that are still valuable, maybe now more than ever. 
yeah, I, I wanted to say that, you know, I completely agree. I've actually written something on this on this very subject about LARPing recently. And I feel like, you know, there's 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 an inescapability to LARPing at the moment because we're so uncoupled from uh, from, you know, the ancestral cultures. Like it's almost it's not like I'm going to be handed down, you know, agricultural techniques from my grandfather who, you know, was was swept up in collectivization here in, in communist Romania. Like, you know, he he was happy to leave the farm. But at the same time, you know, he's not going to be teaching me anything. So anything that I'm going to learn is going to be a LARP. But yeah, sorry to, to move on to the to the incel issue. Yeah, and I think um, th this is actually a path forward for incels to escape the sort of doomer nihilism and to escape the kind of labeling themselves as like, oh, I'm such a loser, I'm a porn addict, I'm a soy boy, beta cuck, whatever, whatever really self-derogatory terms they throw at themselves. Um, and I think you know, as a subculture, that stuff is incredibly creative and fascinating in a sort of um, twisted way. And like the fact that these young men are being so kind of outspoken and disclosing so much about themselves online is is in a way incredibly brave. Like they're owning their inceldom and they're owning their problems and they're, you know, like they're depressed and they're anxious, but at least they're honest with themselves about it. But it is kind of a dead end. It's not going to take them where they want to go. And when Tucker and I wrote the Mate book, we were kind of seeing that that trend was already starting and we were trying to offer ways to escape. And like, not that many people bought the book or read it, but we were trying. And then Jordan Peterson came along and offered some other ways out of that incel doomer mentality. But I think the young men who rediscover their tribal roots and their evolved instincts and develop a faith that every, you know, remember every single one of their male ancestors succeeded in surviving and reproducing. And all that ancestral wisdom and success is still in there in their DNA. And they just kind of have to rediscover it and revive it and, and let it, kind of come out to play. And if they do that, they will succeed more in their education and careers and getting a girlfriend and, you know, having a family. But mainstream media basically says um, any identification with your ancestry or your traditions is ethically invalid if you are a particular uh, race. So you're not allowed to, like, you're not allowed to do that if you're a particular race, but other races are allowed and encouraged to get in touch with their roots. So I think at least for kind of, uh, you know, European, uh, incels of European ancestry have a particular uphill battle to do to figure out how do I get in touch with my roots in a culture that, um, says it's absolutely illegitimate to do that. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, uh, it seems like a, a, a lot of the, the mainstream discourse and a lot of the resources that, that, you know, people in the situation get are, you know, the, there's kind of this, this pincher movement of, of two sides of useless advice. There's also people telling them, okay, you, sh you shouldn't try. It's, it's all, you know, it's all 
there, there's no way out of this. You know, you're one of these people that doesn't have the perfect proportion of between their, you know, nose to eye bridge and you need you need hunter eyes to get women or whatever you know new new thing it is um on the on the one hand so you just stay and stay in your gaming bunker it's it's all good you know your your line will die out and that's it and on the other hand you have all of this you know mainstream advice that's just like oh you know just just talk to her you know be yourself things like that that are either useless or completely just you know hot air that now you know it doesn't really it doesn't really help them um but i feel like you know as, as a woman, because I, I have a, a big male audience because I talk about, you know, kind of anti-feminist stuff. Um, I feel I feel it's it's not my place sometimes to tell men the, the kind of the harsh truth about the, the, the reality that they will have to fight. This is, you know, this is a it's, it's a competitive thing. You have to excel in something. That's the way out. And, you know, if, if what you're excelling at is, you know, being being a gamer, that's might be, you know, some people really do well with that, but it's probably not going to be the, the thing. And, you know, it's it's I just feel it's it's not my place. I would like, you know, there to be more inspirational people. And there are a few, but, you know, there's just, you know, it's 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 a weird thing to be telling guys, you know, I you know, I appreciate I think you're great, but I feel like you're not going to have success with women if you don't do something extraordinary. And it's hard. It's going to be real hard to do. So I don't know. <laughs> it, yeah, you're absolutely right. These guys are getting bad advice from all directions. And probably the biggest theme in my academic career is trying to remind people that a lot of our mate choice, a lot of our mate preferences are for mental traits and personality traits and, uh, and moral traits. And that the entire evolution of human intelligence and creativity and our capacities for language and, and art and music and humor were products of sexual selection by both sexes. So this, this idea that like women are only attracted to seven foot tall giga chads with 300 pounds of muscle and square jaws is empirically false, because if that was true, we would already all look like that. That's how evolution works. If that was the only female mate choice criterion, that's how we would all look. And of course, we are taller than women and we are stronger. But women have also shaped men to have all these other traits that are valued, like intelligence and humor and blah, blah, blah. So guys have to take a, a realistic inventory of like, what are my strengths and weaknesses? And of course, it's always better to be in better shape and to be stronger and eat right and use your kettlebells and get enough sleep and get sunlight and do all that paleo stuff. But also, as you say, cultivate some skills that are actually going to be attractive and impressive, both to women and also to other men and to employers and to your own relatives, to everybody. Typically, being really, really good at Call of Duty is not honestly that impressive to girlfriends. You could take like a tenth of the hours that you devote to video games and learn how to sing or how to draw or how to do like uh, build shit with your hands and uh, do some MMA, do some jujitsu, what like whatever. Um, and the weird thing is when I make, the, when I offer this advice to young men, I sometimes get blowback of saying men shouldn't care at all about female preferences. If you're only doing it to attract women, 
it won't attract women. And I think, uh, okay, okay, dudes, whatever, lecture me, I'm doing just fine. Um, all of your male ancestors did plenty of stuff to attract women. They like built cities and invented things and conquered empires and made money. And if you think doing things to attract women is an illegitimate motivation to do things, you will fail. It's just a question of like, get yourself better calibrated about what is actually attractive to women. It's not just your muscles and it's not just your, you know, sociopathic self-confidence. It's a whole bunch of other stuff, most of which you can cultivate. Yeah. Exactly. And it, it, it's interesting to me, like uh, Zero HP Lovecraft, who was on this podcast, made a, a really good point about uh, pickup artistry, which is just that it's um, it's kind of mimicking the, the natural male self-confidence of someone who's actually, you know, high status and then just trying to trying to translate that into into little, you know, yeah, surface level behaviors or, or things that they're interesting and i thought that was really insightful because yeah that's essentially what it is you know like no no late, low status guy would would neg you because he'd be too terrified if if he's high status is like what you know this guy's risking alienating me now by telling me my my you know i look skinny in these jeans <laughs> so it's uh it's it's quite it's quite an interesting point i thought um and another area that I wanted to to chat to you about is uh, is kind of existential risks. I know you're interested in this, and um, you know, ex risks, existential risks. Um, what's what's this whole area about, and, and kind of what what's what's coming at us that we're not really thinking about? I got interested in existential risks maybe about um, five or six years ago. My my current wife Diana, when I first met her, she said, "Hey, have you heard about this movement called?" effective altruism. And it's about applying principles of reason and evidence to figuring out how do you do the most good that you can in the world, given the problems that we face. So effective altruism focuses on issues like global public health and like, how do you fight malaria in developing countries or global poverty? How do you lift countries out of poverty? Or um, there's a lot of focus on animal welfare and how do you move from like a factory farming system to a system that's nicer to the billions of animals that we eat, whether that's going vegan or developing factory farm meat or just free range cattle, whatever. Let's think about it. But a big part of effective altruism is asking what are the major risks that humanity faces that could literally drive us extinct as a species? And we're not talking about the usual bullshit about global warming is going to kill billions of people because it won't. Um, from my point of view, global warming is like, it's a big issue. It's something we should think about, but it's not actually an existential risk. It's not going to kill every human on the planet in the next 30 years, like Greta Thunberg thinks it will. So what are the real X risks? Um, I think there are things like nuclear war and nuclear winter. I think there are things like genetically engineered bioweapons, genetically engineered pandemics. Um, we've seen what pandemics can do in the last you know, 15 months. And there are things like artificial general intelligence, AI. And there, there are some other ones, but I think these are like the three big X risks. 
There are other X risks like oh, asteroid impact, but honestly, we're already tracking most of the asteroids and comets that could kill us. And the chance of that happening in the next thousand years is way, way, way under 1%. So likewise with super volcanoes, likewise with, oh my God, there could be a gamma ray burst from a, a supernova 10 light years away, whatever. Those aren't the things that are likely to, to fuck us up. So um, I think in a way, the top priority, I think for every political system in the world is minimize X risk, get through the next century. Everything else I think is just kind of rounding error. Everything else is kind of trivial bullshit. So anybody who thinks like economic inequality is a bigger issue than nuclear war is to me just completely delusional because our descendants in a thousand generations aren't going to give a shit about the degree of economic inequality that happened to exist in the 21st century. All they'll care about is, did we survive the existential risks? Um, demographic collapse is arguably a, a pretty serious existential risk also. So that's my little, that's my X risk rant, short version of it. No, I, uh, I think it's, you know, it's, it's very worthy subjects to, to lose some sleep over. Um, yeah, especially, I mean, especially this is just the thing that I've been thinking about, you know, the, the demographic collapse, because I'm, it's very visceral, you know, you see the demography collapsing in people, you know, because they, you know, they, they've missed their fertility window, or they're just not, you know, just, you just know so many people that are not having children. So it's, it's kind of a, a very close, close to home thing. Um, but you know, I think it's it's also, you know, the distance that people just, you know, in, inequality is something that, you know, it, it, it sells eyeballs, love it, you know, it, it, it riles people up, it's rage bait on the internet. Um, it's hard to to froth people into, into caring about general AI. But I don't know, do you do you think we're, we're any anywhere close to to, I don't know, being threatened by like AGI or, or, or something like that. I haven't really looked into this because I'm a very parochial person, but it does feel uh, kind of a, a scary thing. I think we're, we're pretty close. And uh, I don't know, I have kind of an unusual perspective on this because back in grad school at Stanford, I did a bunch of research with neural networks and genetic algorithms and kind of autonomous agents and kind of early AI systems. And so I've seen in the kind of 30 years since then, how much progress has happened in terms of um, systems like DeepMind and AlphaGo and deep learning and um, the kind of ordinary deployment of kind of AI systems in all kinds of technologies that would have been considered kind of astonishing artificial intelligence by the standards of 30 years ago, but that are now kind of just taken for granted, like, oh, that's just a chat bot, or, oh, that's just a, uh, an automated uh, trading system that, that transfers trillions of dollars around the world, you know, in, in microseconds. And so over the timescale of decades, AI progress is absolutely astonishing and very fast. 
it's just people are like, oh, I thought we'd have self-driving cars by now and we might not for another five years. So it's nothing we should worry about. But if you ask yourself, what kind of world are our grandkids going to live in? You know, what kind of role will AI play then? It's really terrifying. Yeah, I'm, I'm curious what you think about this, uh, this hypothesis that in a way that the singularity was was in the past. And I'm not talking about the, the simulation hypothesis, but the idea that in a way we AI is here, you know, any any iterative algorithm, you know, that that is either self-improved or improved through A-B testing or some sort of, you know, self-iteration uh, is already a, a kind of a fraction of AI. And it it is improving things or improve. It is changing things towards at least from the market side to towards the supernormal stimuli that you see in, you know, included in almost everything that's being sold to us. So we're kind of slowly being shaped by these by these algorithms, which we don't call AI, we call whatever algorithms, but but on in total, this kind of this egregore that's formed by all of these algorithms does feel like this runaway force that's, you know, it, yeah, it's not called AI, but it is it is something like it. I, I think it is a runaway force and I think it'll have implications, particularly in um, sexuality and, and politics. So, you know, imagine a situation where there's like a retail app, there's a retail AI system that basically lets anybody in the world create a video deep fake of any politician saying anything that, that you want and where it becomes quite difficult to distinguish a legitimate interview from an, like an illegitimate declaration of war where you can make anything you want come out of Vladimir Putin's mouth or Joe Biden's mouth or Xi Jinping's mouth. People are absolutely unprepared for that kind of uh, situation where fake video deep fakes of anybody saying anything could go viral within a matter of minutes. And I, I think that's kind of a, it's kind of an X risk because, for example, I think it dramatically increases the chances of nuclear war. And then the second issue is entertainment is going to get so good, we will have automated split testing of like, if you're watching, let's say, the 50th Avengers movie in 10 years, there will be interactive ways to like tweak the appearance of the characters to be maximally sexy or maximally dominant given your individual preferences, even ways to tweak the plot or to tweak like the, the ethics that are expressed in the movie so that they perfectly match your preferences and the AI is kind of outsmarting your own instant instincts in real time. Same will happen with porn. Same will happen with music. Same will happen with every form of entertainment that we have. And so we're going to be kind of like these helpless flopping fish <laughs> trying to deal with entertainment te technology that is just way smarter than we are. And then, and then the question is like, under those conditions, how do you maintain a viable multi-decade pair bond, or how do you raise multiple kids when both you and your spouse and your kids are all distracted by AI entertainment all the time?
Yeah. And it's, there's also the question of, you know, what, what even does it mean to be rational under, you know, these conditions, you know, when your, your most primitive instincts are, you know, it's, you kind of have like almost electrodes on them. They're being stimulated by, by forces that not even these algorithms can define because they are just emergent. You know, if you, if you ask the algorithm to explain what it's doing, it doesn't know. It just knows that you react this way five times and then it's encoded that reaction into its into what it's going to serve you so it's um you know it's, it's, it really makes being rational quite a tough challenge because it complexifies things and it also detaches you from the apparatus that that lets you be rational yeah so i i think realistically there might be a bit of a civilizational bottleneck that's coming where maybe maybe 90% of humans get kind of swept up in the AI-driven entertainment system and kind of forget to have babies. And maybe 10% of people consciously opt out of that system and they set up their own guardrails. And maybe they, they go offline and they move to Wyoming or they move to, to Romania or wherever and they form little communities you know, that, that view certain kinds of entertainment and consumerist systems as the major existential risks that they face. And I could kind of imagine that happening kind of throughout the West. Other civilizations might react to this, this threat quite differently using more centralized systems of, of kind of control. Um, but I think in a kind of Western liberal democracy system, it's extremely hard to fight that kind of runaway entertainment train and kind of keep your eye on the ball of like, how do we keep civilization going for the next thousand years? Yeah. Cause it's, it's also not, not a goal. Like, you know, if, if you tell people that, oh, you know, I'd really like to keep civilization going for another thousand years, they'll probably say you're a fascist. Like, what, what do you care? What happens to, to the next generation? What do you care? Um, you know, you must, you must have some, some nefarious plans. Um, and yeah, I, th I feel like, you know, we, we kind of had that going with, with this kind of grand narrative, uh, you know, Judeo-Christian civilization substructure. We had kind of a story going for it, you know, a purpose to, to wake up, to, to build towards. But like you said, if there's, if there's no ancestors that are left to worship, there's also no future left to, to build towards, you know, you know, it's, there's always this eternal now. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, I see a lot more people, obviously on Twitter, on the internet, trying to do, do the opt out thing. Um, and that's really heartening, you know, homesteading, localism, all this type of stuff. I think it's, it's really good. Um, but I've also talked to, to, to Rocco Miech, which is kind of a AI related philosopher. He was actually the, the first guest on this podcast. And he said that, you know, from a technological perspective, there might be a solution in essentially having your competing AI, having, you know, personal AI as kind of the, the guardian towards your mind where you, decide the parameters of what you're going to allow in and then just have this AI do your bidding for you and not let, not expose yourself to everything. Yeah. I think that, yeah, there might be some hope in that. The idea that you have a kind of personalized AI mentor or like you kind of outsource your willpower to some AI app. 
that's hopefully fighting for you and your genes and your future family, that would be awesome. The, the trouble is, it's a little tricky to imagine commercially how that would work in a way that really is aligned with your interests rather than the interests yeah. of whatever company. Yeah, that was my pushback it. as well. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Exactly. So it could, it could work. Who knows? Yeah, yeah, it is. You know, it's kind of uh, asking the, the 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 drug dealer to to give you your methadone. You know, I don't know if that's that's how how it works. Um, so, uh, but before I let you go, I'm going to ask you the the question of the show, um, which is: uh, Do you know a subversive thinker, writer, living or dead, um, who you think is is not getting enough airtime from? from the mainstream or from people, you know, just watching this so that, that they might be inspired by or, or learn something from. Yeah, that's a good question. I should have prepped something more, um, more in depth, I suppose. Um, I mean, you know, I'm, I'm impressed by the, evolutionary biology theorists who really thought deeply about the kind of sexual origins of human nature. And obviously everybody knows about Charles Darwin, but I think also um, Sir Francis Galton, founder of behavior genetics and IQ testing and um, uh, so forth is, is worth reading. I think Sir Ronald Fisher, who's an early 20th century biologist who developed some of the first mathematical and formal arguments about sexual selection. So Darwin, Galton, Fisher, they're all kind of being canceled to various degrees. And I worry that pretty soon it will not be possible to buy their books on Amazon. So I would urge anybody who wants to kind of preserve the tradition of serious biological thinking, like get physical copies of these books and keep them. Because I, I see university libraries purging these thinkers already and converting to like digital media, which means you can delete an entire thinker's opus of work with a keystroke if you decide they deserve to be canceled. And I think the only protection of that is physical books that centralized censors can't, can't fuck with. So go back and read some more 19th century biology. Um, yeah, is, is it just a, the, the blank slateism that these, these books are just not, not buying into the, 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 the mainstream of uh, constructivism? Or what, what, what about them is so uh, offensive to, to our current order? Partly we're talking about white males. Partly we're talking about people associated with British colonialism and peak Victorian success, you know, um, and partly we're talking about thinkers in the case of uh, both Darwin and Galton, who actually had substantial experience visiting other countries and other civilizations. I mean, Darwin spent five years on the Beagle touring around the world, South America, Australia, you know, Indonesia, South Africa, observing um, the, the full diversity of humanity. Galton spent years and years traveling around Africa and making observations. And so these were not just 
armchair philosophers hanging out in London, giving their opinions about, you know, why British civilization is superior. They had real life, nitty gritty, life or death adventures all around the world that they kind of folded into their perspective on things. And I think that's one reason why, um, you know, the current sort of SJWs are so threatened by them because they actually uh, had a theoretical perspective, but also kind of real world experience of global diversity that um, doesn't fit the current narrative at all. I'm not saying all their observations were correct. I'm not saying that they had no biases. I'm not saying they weren't prejudiced. I'm just saying they come from an era, you know, for kind of global homogenization. Um, when people could still kind of speak their own truth and make their own observations about what they were seeing around the world. Yeah, the, the, the crime of noticing, it's, it's widespread and it's, it's not seen with, uh, with a lot of, uh, you know, uh, positivity at the moment. Um, yeah. I know you, you have a, a new book out or relatively new on virtue signaling. Um, is there anything that you'd like to, to tell people about or, or, you know, have people purchase? Yeah, I mean, I think, um, all my books are good and I stand by them all and, um, if you want to read one to start with, um, honestly, I would probably start with The Mating Mind, my first book, which really gives the evolutionary context for how I think about human nature and human sexuality. Virtue Signaling is a very short book. It's basically a collection of essays with little introductions to each essay. And um, it talks about our kind of instincts to show off our moral traits to others and how that can be both a very positive good thing in life and also the road to political ruin if virtue signaling is done in certain kinds of stupid ways that like take priority over rational thinking about you know social issues um and then if you're a critic of consumerism you're kind of worried about runaway credentialism and educationalism and careerism and consumerism then spent from 2009 is is a good book to look at so if you're thinking about this sort of how do i opt out of the mainstream system how do i become uh how do i make a community that isn't driven by the need to make money and spend money um spent might give you an interesting perspective on uh how to fight against that kind of consumerist system. And of course, if you're a young male incel, read, read me. Um, and where can people find you? My website is primalpoly.com and my Twitter handle is um, primalpoly. And I'm actually pretty easy to find. Uh, if anybody wants to email me about stuff, um, it's pretty easy to find my email on the primalpoly.com website. And I also have a uh, a YouTube channel where there's a bunch of videos, Jeffrey Miller, PhD, um, at YouTube. Okay, perfect. I'll, I'll link to all of those in, in the show notes. Um, and it's been delightful talking to you, Jeffrey. I'm really happy we could do this. And, and thanks for, thanks for coming on. If you like what you're hearing, want to see where I take it, 
and maybe want early access to episodes, bonus episodes, access to the AMA, or you just want to support the cause of dissident speech or my work in general, head to my Patreon at patreon.com slash aksubversive. Your donations are what keeps the lights on and makes the show possible, so thank you 